Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. President Joe Biden says America is back and that he wants to press the reset button on U.S. relations with the rest of the world. But what does that mean? Let's get to the bottom line. Joe Biden campaigned on promises to destroy the pandemic, create jobs, and tackle the systemic racism that's baked into America's collective psyche. Judging by the flurry of executive orders Biden has signed in his first few weeks, he's focusing on his domestic challenges. But he's also going international, too. So after a break, the U.S. is back in the Paris Climate Accords, back in the World Health Organization, and trying to get back into the U.N. Human Rights Council. Last week, Joe Biden spoke at the State Department to make the point that diplomacy is back, that Washington wants to work with other nations to solve big problems and to pursue America's core interests. He talked about Russia's attempts to undermine American democracy, how he'll need strong alliances to face the rising power of China, how he'd like the United States to accept more refugees, and how we'd like to see an end to wars like that we have in Yemen right now, which has been going on for more than six years. Some of the things that he left out of that speech are interesting, too, like relations with Iran or what kind of future he sees for Palestinians and Israelis. Today, we're talking with someone who can help us make sense of it all. Retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson worked in the leadership of the State Department during the George W. Bush administration and before that served for decades in the United States Army. Colonel Wilkerson, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, as I opened at the me uh, beginning, Joe Biden has spoke on, uh, at the State Department on February 4th. Let's listen to this clip. Defending freedom, championing opportunity, upholding universal rights, respecting the rule of law, and treating every person with dignity. That's the grounding wire of our global policy, our global power. That's our inexhaustible source of strength. That's America's abiding advantage. Though uh, many of these values have come under intense pressure in recent years, even uh, pushed to the brink in the last few weeks, the American people are going to emerge from this moment stronger, more determined, and better equipped to unite the world in fighting to defend democracy because we have fought for it ourselves. Colonel Wilkerson, what are your reactions to Joe Biden's initial scaffolding and framing on American engagement in the world? Uh, he's put a lot on the table. There are a lot of things he wants to do. What do you think of what he's said so far? I think Joe Biden being who he is, and I've known him for at least through Powell, if not directly, for almost 20 plus years, um, he had no other choice than to say what he said. Let's look at his experience. Uh, long years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then years in the chairmanship, and then the minority leader. Um, this is Joe Biden. And frankly, it's a breath of fresh air after four years of Donald Trump. The domestic challenges that are confronting him, including the pandemic, of course, and the foreign policy and security challenges confronting him are daunting. Um, I think he's gotten off to a pretty good start. I hope he can bring to fruition even a quarter or a third of what he's pronounced as his objectives. But I think he's gotten off to a good start, and uh, I, for one, will be a supporter of him. Larry, I find, you know, the challenge for any administration, and you were the, the person who kept order at the State Department as Colin Powell's chief of staff. How does Biden keep his presidency from becoming a reactive presidency rather than having the contours 
of a strategic approach to American priorities? That's a good question. It's a question we asked ourselves at the State Department as we learned about George W. Bush and Richard Cheney, the vice president, increasingly. Um, it's difficult. But I think he's laid down some markers. He's going to have tremendous challenges in the domestic arena. And I think that alone is probably going to make his overseas initiatives difficult to fulfill, if not challenging to fulfill, because he's going to be so focused on these domestic issues. The fact that he's put some of his key people, even people who were foreign policy gurus, so to speak, into the domestic arena is indicative of that. Um, the pandemic is not all he's got to confront, of course. As you mentioned in your opening remarks, he's got to confront this white supremacist evangelical element in our country, which motivated a significant portion of Trump's base and hasn't gone away. As a matter of fact, as we've seen in the last week or so, it appears to be that the Republican Party, my political party, is morphing into a cult a cult that is mostly composed of these kinds of people. So we can we can talk about this and we can say it's not a problem. We can toss it off as a little domestic terrorism. But I think it's going to be an enormous problem in terms of any kind of unity that Joe Biden wants to bring to this country, which will be necessary to meet some really colossal challenges, not least of which is the challenge of the climate, as we're seeing now with the glacier melt in uh, the uh, region of India along the Tibet border, which is just the beginning of that. The Himalayan glaciers are going. Uh, we're going to have this kind of flooding, and then we're going to have no water as the glaciers and the rivers they feed dry up completely. So there are huge challenges, huge challenges. I, I wouldn't want to be Joe Biden, frankly. Uh, well, he has no choice. He's, he's got to he's got to work on these things. So that that's that you know the name of the game of taking that job. Look, when when you know you when the Bush administration left, and you were not there at that time. You were in the Bush administration for the first four years of it. But when they were leaving, and the Obama administration was coming in, I want to acknowledge that you and I worked together, and we we looked at things like where could Barack Obama send different signals to the world then, and we identified three areas. That if he changed the way gravity worked with Cuba with Israel-Palestine and with Iran, it would send a different signal to the world that America was back and that it was going to contribute to global stability. Now, he worked on all of those, uh, some to varying degree. What do you think the defining challenges for a Biden administration coming in, wanting to genuinely send in different signals to the world are? Where's the, what are those, you know, you know, give me some Wilkerson strategic clarity on what buttons matter more than others. Well, he's already dealt with the principal one that everyone wants to talk about and that could go awry at any moment. And that, of course, is the country in the world that's rivaling us now, in some ways surpassing us, China. Um, his statement, uh, I, I have it here, extreme competition, but we need not have conflict. That's exactly the way to look at it. That's kind of the way we looked at it in the first Bush administration, where we talked about strategic competition, but we didn't talk about war. So that's the portfolio he's got to manage. Let's look at the Asia-Pacific, an important region of the world. Almost all trade in that region now is with China dominantly, not with the United States anymore, but with China dominantly. The whole power situation has changed, and we must awaken to that. I think Biden understands that, but the Congress does not. What do I mean changed? It's changed because we are no longer the hegemon 
in the Pacific. There are two of us now. And that's a difficult balance to maintain, particularly when our allies, which we have a plenty in the region, are so cheek and jowl with that giant called China. Her economy and purchasing power parity now surpasses ours. I suspect it will continue to do that. Um, this is a difficult challenge. But you mentioned Cuba. You mentioned Iran. These are places where you can pick up some perhaps low-hanging fruit, certainly with Cuba. Just get back to the point where President Obama was in effecting some sort of rapprochement with that island. And with Iran, he's already said he wants to reenter the JCPOA. Now, Pompeo and Trump left some landmines, a significant landmine in the intricacy and complexity of the sanctions that they put on Iran. They sanctioned the knees of the red ants and the locusts in Iran. So it's going to be extreme. I know something about this. I work with OFAC. You unwind American sanctions with great difficulty, especially when they're so intricate as Pompeo and others left them. So those are some low-hanging fruit areas, but they're not that easy to accomplish. And the Iranians have already said sanctions relief is going to be their quid pro quo for reentering the agreement fully and going along with the parameters thereof. So, yes, there's some things out there he can do. China, Russia, Russia, look at what we need to do. The new start expires this month, and Biden has said he's going to do it. We should have been doing this a long time ago. We need to reestablish nuclear arms control in the world. We let it become a tattered regime. That's very dangerous. So. Yes, there are some things he can do. I've enumerated some of them. He needs to do them swiftly, and he needs to do them positively. And most, most important of all, the instrument with which to do them is diplomacy. One of the challenges in many of the things you just laid out quite beautifully, whether it's with Iran, whether it's confronting and dealing with Russia, is that there are a lot of middle countries involved, both in the Middle East, in Europe, um, uh, that, that have been looking at American behavior the last few years and not sure that the America they, they thought they knew was going to be a good ally on their dark days, and that they've been, to some degree, hedging their bets, very frustrated with our course in Iran. What would you put forward, Larry? What do you think the Biden administration thinks, you know, needs to put forward in terms of trust building with allies that may not believe in an American bounce back? Steve, the Levant, the Middle East, is a particular area of challenge right now, largely because of U.S. miscalculation and even strategic error. The invasion of Iraq in 2003 leads the list in that regard. We turned loose a total chaotic mess in the Levant when we invaded Iraq. We destroyed the balance of power there, and we put Iran in the catbird seat. What we need to do now what, we, what we've done over the years, as you well know, we have changed from a strategy that I was part of the implementation of for so many years in the military, where we had forces offshore. We called it offshore balancing. We didn't have so many forces onshore. Look at that area now. General McKenzie has the most powerful unified command in the unified command plan, central command. He has more forces that he can throw at people anytime he wants to. Indeed, I worry about him sometimes doing things like putting ballistic missile and attack submarines in the Persian Gulf, an extremely dangerous thing to do for those vessels, and doing other things like 
he looks as if he's trying to incite a war over there, buddied up with Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh. That's not the way we should be dealing with that region. We should be trying to stand that huge military apparatus down to a certain extent. Al-UD, the largest air force base in the world. In Kuwait, the largest troop perception facility in the world. In Bahrain, the fifth fleet, the largest and most powerful fleet now. We need to do something different in that region. And I hope President Biden will figure that out. I hope his Secretary of Defense will be right there with him and Tony Blinken and Sex State, and we'll tone this down a little bit and let the region handle many of the problems there. At the same time, I hope I'm hearing right that he's going to take a different tack to the Palestinians because the last administration, virtually under Jared Kushner's uh, unable hand, abandoned the Palestinians, abandoned them, essentially said what my president in 2002 or so said to Arik Sharon, over to you, prime minister. We've been doing this for 40 years and nothing's worked, so you can do what you want to do. And what does that mean? It has meant Israel turning into increasingly an apartheid state in both Jerusalem and the West Bank, and many would say an apartheid state with regard to anyone who is non-Jewish who lives within the primary territory of Israel. So this has got to, you've got to get a handle on this, and the handle has to represent the Palestinians in a far more uh, front-leaning way than the Trump administration was doing, and that, that, that means the Palestinians have got to find some new leadership, too. Mahmoud Abbas is no longer cutting the mustard. They need to find some younger, more energetic, more dynamic, more capable leadership. And they need to give the Israelis a run for their money. And we need to help them do that. So there's a pack of challenges in the law. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think, in the, you know, it is interesting that, that, that 15 years of Mahmoud Abbas, 11 years after his term extended, um, they become kind of irrelevant, uh, if you will, to, to just about every party. So. Uh, replenishing leadership, bringing in youth, hopefully, that is not part of that, you know, corrupt stagnancy. You know, I completely agree. But, Larry, let me, ask, let me ask you to go a little bit deeper on Iran and Saudi Arabia for a minute. So with regards to Iran, there are elections coming up there, too. And as in any nation, there is a struggle between hardliners and reformers. That seems to be in every country in the world. So what we do now will play into that. With Saudi Arabia, we have intelligence estimates that said that Mohammed bin Salman uh, likely gave the order to have Jamal Khashoggi killed. We've just cut off arms uh, sales and supplies to Saudi for the continuation of the Yemen war. So things are going to shift there. Neither party is one that we're particularly comfortable with, I, you know, to say the least. How does America get its interests right in that situation? I think I heard you say we ought to step back and let them solve the problem. But, but are they so important that we just can't withdraw? I, I take the importance of the relationship with Saudi Arabia seriously. In the military, that was part of my portfolio for a long time at U.S. Pacific Command. I take the relationship with uh, Little Sparta, the UAE, and others, and Qatar, and others, very seriously, too. The, the, the GCC was always a, a, a very tentative organization and fought amongst itself more than it was an alliance. But I have to say that it hasn't worked what we've done up to this point. It's not worked in any serious way. Now, let me back up and say one of the reasons, reasons it hasn't worked lately is because we made such a mess in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq. But that said, that mess needs to be cleaned up as best as it, as best it can. And the way you do that 
is you get Saudi Arabia and its allies on that side of the Gulf, if you will, and Iran, and you get them to talking. You get them to understanding that it is in their best interest and in the stability interest of the region to get them together and not to be so confrontational. The only reason the Saudis think they can be confrontational in a serious sense, and especially Mohammed bin Salman, is because they got the United States backing them. They got the superpower backing them. They got $80 billion in arms sales and so forth. Yesterday, I spent some time with the French Committee on National Legislation trying to help them write a letter to President Biden, and they've done a magnificent job of it. And I hope that letter is headed for the White House right now. And it details the things that uh, he ought to fill in, the somewhat ambiguous policy statement he made with regard to getting the Saudis to stop the war in Yemen. That's an important ingredient to all of this that I'm saying. We need to stop that brutal conflict. And pulling the United States out of support, all military support for the Saudis in terms of offense, and that needs to be defined comprehensively and broadly, not narrowly like the Pentagon likes to do usually, is a first step. You have to get that conflict stopped, and then you have to get Tehran and Riyadh talking to one another and all the rest in the group, too. And you have to get them convinced that the best way to bring peace and stability and ultimately prosperity to that region is for them to stop this uh, constant fighting and this grudge-bearing that they have and get to doing things that help all of them at the same time. The COVID-19 pandemic is a case in point. Iran, because of our sanctions, is hurting right now, really hurting. It was unconscionable what Pompeo was doing in terms of using humanitarian reasons to sanction Iran. Just unconscionable. They couldn't even get masks and basic ingredients, the PPP you need for COVID-19. They couldn't get any of this stuff. We need to stop that, too. That We need to take a different approach to the region, Steve, and the approach needs to be more balanced. It needs to be more diplomatic than military. And it needs to be as holding people's hands as they negotiate their own agreements rather than our trying to compel them to it by dropping bombs on their territory. That's been our policy for the last 20 years or so. Let us bomb you a little bit and we'll fix you. It doesn't work. And we've proved it. Colonel, we're talking to you in part today because of your deep knowledge of the State Department, but you also have deep knowledge of the Pentagon. I remember when Bill Clinton came into office, there was concerns about a gap between Bill Clinton and the Pentagon and whether the Pentagon would ultimately sabotage various Clinton initiatives. I remember the same thing when Barack Obama came in on whether the Pentagon was ultimately going to be a veto on some of the things Barack Obama was trying to do. And we know those struggles. They've been documented. As Joe Biden is coming in, has come in, we also know from the past that there's been some ambivalence among, you know, major leaders in uh, 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 the Pentagon. I mean, I, you know, I just just remember Afghanistan and others where you have generals that basically mocked Joe Biden when he was vice president. What is your sense? Does Joe Biden going to have a Pentagon under General Lloyd Austin, now Secretary Lloyd Austin, that is going to execute his policies, or are they going to become a constraint and a saboteur? Uh, on Joe Biden's uh, foreign policy course? Well, that's a very good question, Steve. And let me back up for just a second to one of your uh, comments. The worst thing President Obama did in his second term, if not both terms, was the Libya operation. Uh, led into it by Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power and others. But uh, I had a conversation with him in the White House. 
And uh, he started the conversation with these words, there is a bias in this town toward war. And then with Secretary Kerry right beside him, he began to talk about that in the way that it was, the era that it was. So the Pentagon was objecting to that. Bob Gates did not sign up to that war. So there is a possibility, and with Lloyd Austin there, and I think that's the reason Joe Biden wanted to put him there, there's a distinct possibility that the Pentagon will be more amenable to what President Biden wants to do than we might think otherwise. Now, you're right. There are some people, and I put at the top of the list General McKenzie, the aggrandizing, power-seeking, give-me-some-more-forces Central Command commander right now. Um, if, if I were Biden I'd be and Austin, I'd be watching him really close. It looks to me like he wants to be another storming Norman, get himself another war that he can be famous in and his command can be the main participant of. So I, I, I wouldn't have anything to do with someone like that. And if Biden has to fire a few people, as, for example, you recall Dick Cheney did when he first came, came in as Secretary of Defense, then so be it. But the Pentagon's got to go along with what the president wants to do, unless the president is like the former one and wants to use the Pentagon for domestic purposes, as it was clear Donald Trump wanted to do. Uh, I don't think that'll be Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden and the Pentagon, uh, particularly with Lloyd Austin as the Secretary of Defense, will get along quite well. And I think uh, he needs to listen probably to the Pentagon with regard to the use of military force as much as he might to Blinken at the, the State Department. I, I recall Powell telling me many times in my own experience this out that the warmongers in the cabinet, cabinet sometimes lived at Foggy Bottom more than they did at the five-sided puzzle, <laughs> puzzle palace. So, so you have to be careful there. But right. Biden has the experience. This is probably the most experienced president that we've had with regard to foreign and security policy, and to a certain extent domestic policy too, all the time he spent in the Congress, that we've had since George H.W. Bush. Um, and I think that is the, my, my teaching and my study has demonstrated to me, my students would probably verify this, the most important asset a president can bring to the White House in the beginning, and conversely, the, the most dangerous element if he doesn't have it, is experience knowing what he's doing from the get-go. Presidents learning on the job are dangerous. Well, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, former chief of staff of the Department of State, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and thoughts and insights with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, and best of health to you, and stay, stay safe. So what's the bottom line? Joe Biden may say America is back, but this isn't a Disney movie. He can't just say abracadabra and like magic, everything is fixed. The world's still trying to get over the weirdness of a superpower that said, screw you, with its America first narcissism for the last four years. Biden wants a lot of things, and many are good. He wants America to welcome more refugees, wants to elevate LGBTQ rights globally. He may enjoy a honeymoon phase of goodwill in some corners of the globe. But then it's going to get tough. He's going to be tested by friends and by foes. At least the world's problems won't be dealt with through tweets and sound bites from a president yelling over the sound of a helicopter. But in a messy world where trust in America's intentions and character are low, we just have to wonder how much will he be able to pull off? And that's the bottom line.